I'm reading from the New International Version. So 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those who entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by a human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Then Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is, is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Thank you, Hannah. And um, you might want to keep 1 Corinthians 4 open in your Bible in front of you um, as we listen to God's word together. So last Sunday, there was an article in the New York Times that caught my eye. Let me read you the headline. An atheist chaplain and a death row inmate's final hours. Curious? I was. Especially when I read the accompanying subheading. Together they wrestled with one question. How to face death without God? Well, let me tell you, it's worth a read if you can get your hands on it for all sorts of reasons. For one, it was one of the most moving pieces of journalism I've read in a long time. For another, it makes me even more convinced that what we do here on a Sunday really matters. The article tells the story of Devin Moss, a humanist chaplain who spent a year ministering to Philip Hancock. And Hancock had been convicted for murder. And in fact, he was executed just last November. As I read about their relationship, I felt deeply moved by the experience of both men. Interestingly, they had each been raised in a Christian home, but had since lost belief in any meaning beyond material existence. And I find the chaplain's compassion and commitment to his inmate really inspiring, actually. But I was keen to discover just how he would seek to bring comfort during those final hours. And what I discovered is not what I expected to find. Because despite all his protests to the contrary, this atheist chaplain spoke to his convicted friend in surprisingly religious language. To my surprise, the two men referred frequently to scripture in their conversations. They even explicitly invoked those words that Hannah just read to us from Philippians 4. The inmate asked the chaplain if he would use these words, 
to set the tone of their conversations. Isn't that interesting? And I was, dis- I was really surprised to discover them even uttering a prayer in inverted commas together in Hancock's final moments, albeit absent of any mention of God. In fact, at one point in the article, Moss admits to saying a real prayer to the God he claimed no longer to believe in after he was left shaken and bereft at his friend's death. The writer of the article describes it brilliantly. She says it was like a sneeze coming out of him. It was involuntary and spontaneous. And I think Moss was a little bit embarrassed by it. And yet, despite all of this, at the end of the article, Moss reiterates his atheism. The article ends with a blunt and uncompromising statement from this humanist chaplain. Driving away from the prison for the last time, he utters these words. God has nothing to do with this. God has nothing to do with this. Now, we might flinch from these words in church, but I wonder if a lot of the time we don't act or live as though these words are true. When it comes to how we spend our money, our careers, how we use our time, very often we behave, don't we, as if God has nothing to do with this. We might not always be aware of it, but in our increasingly individualistic world, I think it can be hard to resist this way of thinking. We swim in cultural waters that sort of encourage us to think that we are responsible for our success in life. That when it comes to the good things we have to enjoy, well, we only have ourselves to thank. I remember in my last uh, couple of years as an English teacher, to my delight, a poem sort of caught the zeitgeist. The poem Invictus, do you remember this poem, was enjoying some renewed popularity, especially among some of the teenage boys in my class. Who would have thought it? It was associated at that time with the film about Nelson Mandela and the South African rugby team. The young men in my class were inspired by the entrepreneurial spirit of the poem's final stanza. I don't know if you know it. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You can see why the words are inspiring. And as an English teacher, I really was delighted at this enthusiasm for poetry. But the words speak more to the spirit of our age than they do to the spirit of Christ. In fact, at the end of this week of Christian unity, I'm more inclined to listen to the words of that great theologian of the Jesuit tradition, Ignatius of Loyola. Here's what he had to say. You'll see it in your order of service, in fact. All things in this world are gifts of God. All things are gifts of God. They're created for us to be the means by which we can come to know him better, love him more surely, and serve him more faithfully. All things in this world are gifts of God. 
See, Ignatius simply couldn't agree with that sentiment of Invictus. He's more in tune with what we've heard from our reading in Corinthians this morning. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul reminds us that we are, as the NRSV puts it, stewards or servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. What he's saying there is that this life we live is not, in fact, our own. It's on loan to us, and we're obligated to live it well. That's the thrust of those two words Paul uses in that opening verse, servant and steward. You see, servant here in the original Greek, there are actually a number of different words Paul could have used, and Paul often uses different words for servant in his writings. But here he uses a very particular word, a word that has a focused meaning, because this is a servant who is under direction. A servant who doesn't have freedom to act on his or her own, but who's under the direction of his master. It might help for us to think in sort of that Roman world of the trireme, you know those long Roman ships you see in the films? A servant is one of those rowers in the belly of the boat. They don't set the course, that's the job of the captain. The rower's job is simply to row. So that's the word Paul uses there, we're servants in that sense. And he also uses this word steward. And that gives us that same nuance. A steward is someone who's appointed to look after the affairs of his or her master. My old boss at Kirkpatrick, you met him on Friday night. He was a massive Lord of the Rings fan. We could play Lord of the Rings bingo sometimes in his sermons. And if he were here this morning, he might point us to the stewards of Gondor, if you're a Tolkien fan. Those who were appointed to rule until the return of the king. You see, with these two words, Paul is telling us that as servants and stewards of our King Jesus, this life that we live is not our own. We're not the masters of our fate, nor are we the captains of our souls. We are, as the theologian David Kelsey reminds us, did you hear this phrase? Creatures living on borrowed breath. Creatures living on borrowed breath. That's a sobering thought for a Sunday morning. Maybe it's a bit too sobering, actually. Because I don't think we should forget that what Paul is saying here is good news. Here's another way that maybe you could think about it today. And it's an example that comes from our experience the past week or so of moving into the manse. Last week, Dennis came around to help me transfer accounts and things, and we had a very amusing exchange with the gas company. The young guy on the phone, he just was not able to get his head around my living situation. So do you own the property? No. Oh, so you're renting the property? No. So are you living with the owner of the property? No. I was just waiting for him to ask whether we were invoking squatters' rights. By the end of our conversation, he had a new question to add to his pre-written script. Do you live in a church manse? Actually, it turns out his auntie belongs to the congregation, but we couldn't, in fact, work out exactly who he was talking about. So if your nephew works for the gas company, let me know. But you know, you can't blame him for his confusion, can you? 
our living arrangement does need a little bit of explanation, not least to ourselves. But here's how we've described it to Esther and Daniel, and it's this that I want you to listen to, because it might help us understand what Paul means here about how we're to steward life. We've told Esther and Daniel, the manse is our home, but it's not our house. It's our home, but it's not our house. It's been given to us to enjoy. That's a privilege that we have, but it comes with it responsibilities to use it well. Now, does that help you grasp what we're saying here in this series? I guess this life we've been given is our home, but it's not our house. God has given us the most wonderful gift to enjoy together. But part of that enjoyment to really experience life in its fullness, we actually need to learn how to steward it well. So that's where the joy is to be found. And so that's what we're going to be doing together over the next number of weeks. We're going to be thinking together and exploring the art of Christian living, as I've called it. We're going to learn how to be better stewards of life together. And hopefully you'll have seen from the little leaflet in your pews that money is only one week of those 15. It's only a small part of this calling. I want us to think about stewardship holistically. In the coming weeks, we're going to be considering everything together from how we care for creation to how we steward the community God has given us. We'll be thinking about how we use our, our time and where we should put our attention. We'll even be thinking about how we can steward well our doubts and even our suffering for the good of ourselves and for the good of others. And it's my hope that this idea of stewardship will become core to the culture here at St. John's. I want us to understand the privilege and the responsibility of being human in this world and more than that, of being the church of Jesus Christ. I want this notion of stewardship to seep into our very marrow here, to be written, so to speak, into our DNA. And in all this, I want us to emphasize the joy of the life God has given us. The atheist chaplain I mentioned on his death row inmate they drew inspiration from Philippians 4. Well, so does the author Marilyn Robinson. I told you I'd be mentioning her, didn't I? In her book, The Givenness of Things, she invites us to consider the joy that can be experienced when we steward this life well. There's a little quotation in your order of service buyer. This is what she says. If God has taken pleasure in his creation... There's every reason to assume that some part of his pleasure is in your best idea, your most generous impulse, your most disciplined thinking on whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, excellent, and worthy of praise. She's talking about your best idea, each one of you. And as your minister, I am excited to discover what each of you in front of me can contribute to our collective joy together. Remember, it wasn't just me who made a promise on Friday night. Remember all those I do's? You made a promise as well. The challenge 
for st of stewardship is for all of us, every single one. You see, that's what Paul means by that phrase, let us, that begins our reading. Don't be tempted to think that he's singling out himself or the other apostles there. He's being inclusive here of everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ. Because the calling of ministry is for all of us. Each one has a part to play. And I want to say right now in this inaugural sermon here, if St. John's is going to be and continue to be that vibrant, joy-filled community we want it to be into the future, then we're going to have to see a new generation come and step up for that work, aren't we? Looking on from the outside, it seems to me that the vacancy actually has been a blessing in this regard. It has given folk in this church an opportunity to serve maybe in ways that they haven't served before because there's been a need. Well, I want to tell you that just because now the pulpit's been filled, there's no vacancy anymore, that's not going to end. I want to invite you to, in fact, step up to do more of the sharing of this calling of stewardship together. Because it's our privilege and responsibility to be Christ's stewards and you can read it together. Now, I guess just as we come to an end of this sermon, we need to ask, what is this going to look like? How will we know that we've been successful in this calling? Well, Paul gives us some help here too. If you look on in the reading, you'll notice he says, it is required of stewards that they should be found trustworthy. You see, we've been entrusted with life, yes, but as followers of Christ, we are entrusted with more than that. We are stewards of God's mysteries, Paul tells us. In other words, we're custodians of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And as we consider all the different aspects of Christian living in these coming weeks, first among them all is the responsibility to steward the gospel. We are Christ's ambassadors in the world. That's a scary thought, isn't it? You and me, it's for us to do it. And the only measure of our success in this calling, if success is even the right word, the only measure will be our faithfulness to him and how well we've demonstrated our trustworthiness of stewards of this good news. We want to live in such a way that when the king returns, he will say to his stewards, well done, good and faithful servants. And I guess if that sounds like too much responsibility to bear, as I finish, let me offer you some encouragement from an unlikely source. Let me return once more to our atheist chaplain. Listen to these words he spoke to Hancock in his very final moments on earth. In the beginning of this, when I asked you what you really wanted out of a spiritual care advisor, it was Philippians chapter four, you said. Show me something real, you told me. Show me something true. Well, what is real is that you are loved. What is true is that you're not alone. I don't think he properly understood the truth 
of his own words. We are loved. We're loved by one another, but we're loved by our creator, God. The good news of the gospel is that God loves us. In fact, we might say he likes us because Christ came to make us friends with him. And we're not alone because our God does not just come to us or at us. He is with us, walking alongside us in all of the ups and downs of life. So at the beginning of this new ministry at St. John's, let us all live as faithful stewards in the knowledge that God loves us and is with us as we seek to serve him with the good news we've been given. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.